This episode of Diffusion Science Radio is supported by you, the listener, when you visit audibletrial.com science to try Audible free for 30 days. Go to www.audibletrial.com science to receive your free audiobook today. Or make a donation directly on diffusionradio.com. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, robots and graffiti at Dorkbot. But first up, here's the news. Ten houses built in just one day. The Winsun Decoration Design Engineering Company used huge 3D printing machines to build houses up layer by layer. The company is in the Shanghai High-Tech Industrial Park at East China City of Sanshu. The ink in the printers is made from mining tailings and recycled construction waste mixed with a secret proprietary quick-drying cement, and then reinforced with recycled glass fibres. The quick-drying cement is what makes it possible for each layer to be built up so quickly onto the next. The 200 square metre houses were built with an array of four printers that are each 10 metres wide, 32 metres long and nearly 7 metres high. The walls and other parts are printed and then assembled by hand into detached single-storey houses. The inventor, Ma He, has been developing 3D printers for 12 years he's been able to get the cost of each house down to only $5,000. For comparison, a demountable building costs around $20,000. He boasts of being able to print any digital design that customers bring in. Winsun has plans for building 100 recycling facilities around China to make the fast-setting concrete and keep up with demand. They plan to build an entire villa and hope someday to 3D print skyscrapers. China has announced that the first 3D printed house project will be located in the Qingdao International Sculpture Park. Meanwhile in the US, the University of Southern California's Professor Baroque Koshnevis could print a similarly sized house in about 24 hours, in place, without the need for later reassembly. His contour crafting robot would build the walls up layer by layer with extruded reinforced concrete, adding plumbing and electrical cabling as it builds. The technology frees builders to create curved walls and beautiful architecture that hasn't been possible before. He anticipates a market in custom luxury houses, but his system is still in development. He envisions that on a clear and levelled site, workers lay down two rails just a bit wider than they planned the final house to be. A computer-controlled crane with a hanging nozzle would spit out concrete in layers to create hollow walls and then fill the walls with more concrete. Humans would hang the doors and windows. At present, the system just prints walls in the lab, but the walls are three times stronger than regular house walls. Contour Crafting's research is being funded by NASA 
and the Cal Earth Institute. Professor Koshnevis hopes to seize contour crafting robots constructing habitats and labs on the Moon and Mars. A Dutch firm, Dus Architects, is working with the 3D printing company Ultimaker to design a machine that can print large building blocks from plastic that can be fitted together to quickly assemble a house. It will take them three years to build the first house, but that house will have 13 rooms and already contain furniture. The plan is to have the printer create everything in the house, from walls to furniture from printed parts that can be fused together. The house printer is called the Camera Maker, which means room builder. It's using plastic like a scaled up home 3D printer. It creates building blocks that are two by two by three and a half meters. After a month of building, a three meter high corner section has been completed. The blocks can be stacked on top of one another like Lego bricks. The honeycomb lattice design leaves space for cables and pipes in the walls. The 13 room house is modeled on a traditional Dutch gabled canal house. The plastic they use to print the blocks is a bioplastic made of microfibers and plant oil. They're also testing a translucent plastic and wood fiber mix, like a liquid form of MDF that can later be sawn and sanded. At present, the lattice blocks are being filled with concrete. In future, Dus would like to be able to print biodegradable plastic tents in outrageous shapes for festivals. Another Dutch architect is working on a project to build a house shaped like a looping Mobius strip using an Italian D-shape printer. The D-shape printer uses sand mixed with a binding agent to create a synthetic sandstone. So far, only a small pavilion-sized building has been printed. The completed Mobius strip loop will cost around 5 million euros to build. And finally, back in the USA, in Minnesota, an architect has designed his own concrete 3D printer based on the open-source RepRap Mendel 3D printer. He plans to build a two-storey home and then later refine his technique and build an energy-efficient home based on thermal mass principles for temperature control. But first, he's going to practice by building a children's playhouse castle. He's finding challenges in controlling the drying rates for the sand-cement mix, and also in making a nozzle that extrudes the concrete without blocking. Videos of all the building printers in action, along with links to photos and details, will be on the Diffusion Radio page for this show. Listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Dorkbot is a collective of technological artists. Last week at Dorkbot Sydney, I spoke with Josh Hall about making art with mapping robots and graffiti. Josh Hall recently finished a PhD between the College of Fine Arts and the Faculty of the Built Environment at the University of New South Wales. Josh is using mapping technology in a performative way as art. I began by asking him to explain photogrammetry. 
The sounds in the background are from the traffic on Oxford Street in Paddington. So the technique that I'm primarily using is called photogrammetry. And what that does is take a whole bunch of different images and builds a reconstruction of the world through those images. So it reconstructs geometry based on the overlap in different images. And can you give an example of some of the sort of work you've done with that? You did a mapping of the Museum of Contemporary Art? Yep, so the mapping of the, of the MCA was done primarily just from actually manually mapping. So I was using SketchUp, just running around. I had the architectural blueprints, uh, so I took those, put them into SketchUp, extruded them up to the right height. I had a laser distance measure, so I knew the heights of the ceiling. The thing that I did use photogrammetry for primarily was for sculptural artworks. So most of the building is fairly rectilinear, so I can just sort of put it in. It's easier, actually, to model it in a really straightforward way, just saying here is a plane, here's a whatever, and then um, projection mapping different textures onto the surface of different things, so paintings, for example. But where photogrammetry was really useful was for modelling of sculptures, things like... um, you know, did those sandstone sculptures, for example, the other ones that I did, various 3D things that are sort of more organic shapes and would have been impossible to model in a sort of manual sort of way. So that was done through that. And you actually created a walkthrough, a virtual environment of the a virtual MCA. Yep, that's right. So at the end of that, I did a three-week residency. At the end of the three-week residency, I had a space that was... Um, pretty much a a working uh, interactive model of the ground floor of the MCA, the the main entrance to the MCA and all of the first floor gallery space, so their permanent collection, including all of the artworks and I had um, most of the video works as well were there Um, I'd recorded the video and had them sort of running in in situ in the model. And how did people access the model? The model was a interactive computer game, actually. So for that particular residency, the model was installed in the entrance to the MCA. And the idea was this sort of like parallel opportunity for people to explore the MCA space. So they were given an option when they came into the MCA of either walking up the steps and looking at the real space or sitting down at a... um, it's a sort of mock-up of a gamer's lounge room with a sofa and a coffee table and a big screen TV and an Xbox controller, all that sort of stuff, sitting down at the sofa and playing a computer game of the space. It was sort of trying to be a bit funny about different ways of experiencing space, like one technologically mediated, one, yeah, the computer game. Um, so that was quite fun, yeah. And people could do things in the virtual space that they couldn't do in the real museum. Well, that's right. So the first version of the reconstruction was very clinical. It looked very um, accurate. So all of these things like plug sockets in the right place, the artwork um, labels and everything in the right place. But you pretty much were limited for what you could do in the actual gallery. So you could walk around and look at the artwork. And I noticed that when people are playing a computer game, there's a whole bunch of expectations of interactivity. Like, there's some assumptions about what you can do um, in your agency in a virtual environment that you don't have in the in the real world. So you're you're willing to walk around and sort of do what you're told in the gallery space, in the real gallery space. But when you're playing a computer game, you kind of want to explore different possibilities. So people were kind of frustrated that they couldn't interact with the space more. 
So for the second iteration of that, I allowed, I physicalized all of the artworks so they could be moved around in the space and then allowed people to pick them up and run around with them and sort of do all sorts of stuff like that. Absolutely. You were using a game engine, were you? Yep. The game engine was a game engine called Crisis. It's a cry engine. And the idea, I suppose, is uh, I'm really fascinated by computer game engines because that first person way of engaging in space is really interesting it's um even a completely fantastical space you sort of have this sense of being there a bodily sense of being there which is really interesting uh and my research like looking at mapping different forms of mapping there's a very stark contrast between the sort of mapping which is done to make life easier to optimize sort of productive life sort of you know a business going on a business trip in a foreign city and trying to get from a to b that sort of thing you get your little uh, optimized path from one place to another so that top-down view of of a space is very very different from what you'd get in a first-person shooter where they're really trying to create the atmosphere of a space and even if it is a fantastical space it's often got a very evocative sort of sense of atmosphere going on often with very theatrical ways of sort of creating atmosphere, which I'm really fascinated by. So this, doing the MCA as a computer game engine, I was sort of exploring those senses of, of um, atmosphere, like uh, ambient sound effects and things like that. And did you have some old game features left in the game? Well, yes. So this is, this is one of the things. It was a work in, in progress for much of the three-week residency and some of the features that come along with the CryEngine it's a it's a shooter so um, for some of the early um, run-throughs some of the features like the grenades and things like that were still in it and I had a few times when people were running around accidentally hit the grenade button and sort of and blew up a corner of the MCA which was kind of fun in its own way. Did you have a system where people needed to collect certain paintings? I did I did explore a little bit the idea of a, a, a little bit of a weird art education, sort of a, a quirky art education approach where there'd be some sort of shifty character outside of the MCA who'd tell you that the black market really wanted you to go and steal a particular artwork and you'd have and the idea would be like it was both getting an idea and an appreciation of different artworks and also a sense of where that artwork was in the MCA so he might say okay can you steal like a Richard Bell video and you'd have to know and you'd get given a minute to run through from the ground from the entrance all the way through the MCA, get to that one particular point where the, the Richard Bell artwork is, grab it and then, you know, sprint back. And I thought, yeah, I mean, quirky is probably the right, right way to describe it. It's very sort of unorthodox way of teaching people about what different artworks uh, there are in the MCA and where they are in the MCA. But I thought, you know, it would be amazing that by the end of it, through this sort of circuitous route, people would learn to appreciate and learn to identify different artworks and also know how to find them in the actual gallery space. That would be great. And you've also been mapping other spaces, like uh, you showed us in Dorkbot a graffiti tunnel that you'd mapped. Yeah, so that's pushing it a little bit more into what I would consider digital conservation. So there's, you know, one of the elements of my research in mapping is the idea that things change and that often maps are sort of concretizing a certain view of the world as an unchanging, a sort of immobile perspective on the city and, and space. 
So one of the things, one of the sites which is obviously not that, which is con constantly changing, very dynamic site, is a graffiti tunnel in Enmore. It's just off Trafalgar Street that until, until a few months ago had been collecting graffiti over the last six years. Constantly changing things, you know, the perfect example of a uh, palimpsest, the different symbols being placed over the top of each other. You know, it's a constant renegotiation of the space through different symbols and different sort of paste ups and all sorts of things going on in this subway tunnel in Enmore that's 35 meters just absolutely covered in graffiti. And which I think is is worthy of conservation, actually. It's one of those things that's constantly changing. And there's an argument that graffiti is shouldn't be, you know, Banksy graffiti in different parts of the world. In Bristol, the council, there's an interesting paradox where the council has gone from considering it vandalism to covering it in perspex to keep people from being able to, to damage it in any way. So that's, that's an interesting sort of... Um, way of looking at it trying to preserve graffiti in that sense and i think that's probably disingenuous to the to the idea of graffiti that you will go to pains to stop it from changing i think graffiti is very much about this this state of flux this constant change and it's like very expressive and very of its time but so while i disagree with the idea of preserving graffiti in a physical sense i think it's really important to to have a conservation um, or a documentation element to it. And this, and a digital conservation thing is probably perfect because you can not only take documentation of what the site looks like, but you can actually represent the changes to the site within a virtual environment, for example. So that was what I was trying to do through this reconstruction of this uh, Trafalgar Street graffiti tunnel was document it in a 3D environment and try and get a sense of space. So not just a 3D representation, not just a sort of like clinical scan, but actually something where you could go in and there would be ambient sound recordings of like the trains passing over the top, which is like quite a significant part of your experience of that tunnel if you're there, if you're actually there, and try and recreate it as a space rather than just like an object that you're, that you're sort of surveying, I suppose. And you've been playing with robots as well. Yes, that's right. So... I've got an exhibition which is just about to finish at First Draft Gallery in Willamaloo. And the idea is, it, it's sort of a play or a little bit of a jab at emerging technologies of mapping, where there's all this amazing technology now for taking the world and bringing it into, a, into an organized and sort of rationalized sort of form, I suppose. So photogrammetry is a really good example of that. You take all of these images and it, it takes all of these very particular images from certain times so they're all I guess every photo that you take of a space has, has got a particular specificity right you've got people in the background it's taken at a certain time of day you can see the clouds you can see all this sort of stuff and then what photogrammetry does is cut out all of the differences and just preserves what's shared between all of the images so it's very much this technology that cuts out change just to preserve what's the lowest common denominator, the thing that stays the same. And what you get out of that is this 3D model that doesn't show anything other than what has remained the same over that time. So it's, it's very much an approach of sort of re removing difference uh, and, and trying to represent things as static. What this robot installation is doing is using similar technology, using photogrammetry to do this mapping process, 
but at the same time being a sort of like critique or a jab at that approach by having uh, the robot goes through this this fairly fairly random path through the gallery space and as it's going it leaves a chalk trail it's got a little chalk pen on the back of it and it leaves this trail which gives a, a record sort of diagrams the the um, path that the robot has taken through the space so on one side of it you get a map reconstruction of the floor of the gallery space but at the same time when you're actually in the space you can see this enormous sort of diagramming of the performance of the robot through the space so it's trying to say you know mapping is a performative process there's uh, all mapping is a performance of one kind or another of space it's not this uh, it's not neutral there's always sort of particular decisions about how you're mapping not sure if that makes if that's yeah, clear yeah. from the idea well this robot is leaving a trail Yes. as it's moving through the space mapping. And I suppose, you know, a lot of my projects are sort of ridiculous application of technology in one way or another. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this is sort of, this, is, this robot is going through a very sort of mechanical process of mapping and it's very, in, a, in, a, in one sense it's very disinterested because it's entirely just driven by whatever sets of algorithms are, ne are um, deciding the navigation of the robot through the space. And it's, you know, it's a closed system. The robot decides where it wants to go and the images are just sort of reconstructed from where it's decided to go. But at the same time, it's in no way a neutral map. It's, it's a crazy, crazy performance of the space. And you look at it and there's just incredible trails across the space. So just to, to summarize, the robot, as well as mapping the space out ahead of it, is changing the space behind it. Absolutely. So another element of the mapping process is that it will continue to remap space that it's influenced by traveling through it. So that's another element of the sort of dynamism of space rather than it being something static and an object. The conversation then turned to the virtual reality headset recently acquired by Facebook, the Oculus Rift. The Oculus Rift is a wearable pair of screens and a head tracker. It's logical for someone who's building virtual worlds or putting the world into the virtual environment you're now looking at things like the oculus rift yes i mean i think that the oculus rift is a really interesting way of approaching experiencing a 3d environment and it's it's kind of a no-brainer for me because i've been working in unity 3d unity 3d has got a really good integration package for the oculus rift so it's pretty much taking a set set of an environment that I've already developed and then plugging the Oculus Rift in and getting sort of free value for money sort of thing and getting something out of it. And the tests that I've done so far, it's, it's great. It's really good. It's, it, you know, it's another level. That first-person perspective where you're in an environment and you sort of feel like you're there, the Oculus Rift, I've been very impressed despite like some, some limitations to the technology, like it's still we're waiting for the second development kit to come along. There's a little bit of a lag in the, in the head tracking, but despite that, it, I've been very impressed at how much of a sense of being somewhere, the sense of space that you get from using the Oculus Rift. It's, kind of, it's actually breathtaking to use it. Did you want to talk about your Horizon line idea? Okay, so the Horizon, that project is a collaboration with a Canadian artist, Neil Branhorst, who does a whole bunch of different sort of large-scale works, subverting the way that we perceive the environment. So they're, they're sort of little illusionary, perceptual illusion 
installations. And this one is just trying to subvert the way that we get a sense of, of up, basically, our sense of balance, our visual sense of balance. And it's trying to create a visual projected laser horizon that will be able to um, throw people off balance and just sort of for a moment um, counteract people's sense of proprioception and all these other senses of balance just to purely with the visual stimulus to make people feel like slightly off balance off kilter for a second which should be fun should be fun so people will be falling over um i'm not sure how i mean ideally they just get thrown off balance for a moment i'm not sure exactly how far neil wants it to go to be honest and i think that's under consultation whether we're going to have the floor lined with pillows or something just <laughs> to keep it to keep it safe and where should people look online to see more of your work if people want to see examples of my work uh, you could go to my artist portfolio, which is joshhall.com, H-A-R-L-E. Or you can look at my research blog, which is tacticalspace.org. Both of them link to each other. And uh, so the, the portfolio has got more sort of the art side and the research blog has got more sort of the technical sort of side of things of, of what I've been looking at. Uh, both are good places to go. Cool. Josh Hall, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Josh Hall at Dorkbot talking about mapping art. You can find Josh's artist portfolio at joshharl.com. That's J-O-S-H-H-A-R-L-E.com. Or look for his research blog at tacticalspace.org. You'll find videos of Josh's work on diffusionradio.com. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Checking production this week was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and 2HHH in Hornsby, Karingai. Diffusion is syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher, radio on demand and on the go. Download the free app from stitcher.net and review Diffusion. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for more information and references about this week's show. You support Diffusion by downloading a free book from Audible. Audible will sponsor Diffusion for everyone who signs up to the free 30-day trial and downloads the free audiobook of their choice from audibletrial.com science. Or look for the donate button on diffusionradio.com to contribute to the costs of producing the podcast directly. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com
Lachlan Watmore on guitar.